from ABC. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. We've backed away from celebrity interviews on this show of late because we got a lot of feedback from listeners saying they were having trouble relating to some of our more famous interviewees. I am confident that this is not going to be the case with today's guest. Brett Eldridge may be a big country star, six number one hits, but he is no dilettante when it comes to tackling mental health challenges. You're about to listen to somebody who is truly digging in and doing the work. By way of background, I had never personally been a big country fan, but I met Brett when he came on the show a few years ago to talk about his onstage panic attacks and general anxiety. And after that, we struck up a friendship and I also really started to like his music. I've been so impressed by the rigor with which he has attacked his mental well-being. And in this interview, he really goes there, speaking in utterly unguarded ways about how ambition and perfectionism have fueled his anxiety, as well as some of his romantic challenges, describing a special kind of therapy designed to address his panic attacks, and holding forth on the impact that meditation and just loosening up in general have had on his creativity, as evidenced by his new album, which is called Sunday Drive. Before we get to Brett, quick reminder, our free election sanity meditation challenge starts inside the 10% Happier app next week on Tuesday, October 27th. Download the 10% Happier app today and join us for the challenge. We're really excited about this thing. We really put a lot of work into it. And by we, I mean pretty much everybody else but me. And we designed it specifically to help you face the commotion of the current election without getting burned out. So download the app today. We'll see you in the challenge. Okay, now here we go with my friend, Brett Eldridge. Very nice to see you again. Thanks for making time. Good to see you, man. Big country star on the show. I love it. I told you this, I was texting with you a couple weeks ago, and I told you that our nanny, my son, who you know, his nanny, Eleanor, who you've met, I walk into the kitchen in our house all the time, and who's coming out of Alexa? Brett Eldridge. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I really appreciate it. And I got to meet her and was just uh, really impressed. And she's just such a sweetheart. So I appreciate her. Still holding strong as a fan, too. That's amazing. She, she's number one. She's going to be so mad at me when I go downstairs after this for dinner and tell her that I talked to you without, <laughs> without including her. Um, we'll send my yes, love. I will. Eleanor and my son and wife and I went to see Brett's Christmas show last year pre-COVID, and it was awesome. And uh, we got to say hellos. So the last time you were on the show, you were really candid about some of the panic and anxiety issues that you've struggled with mm -hmm. as uh, I as you know I've struggled with them too and you and I have spoken about them both publicly and privately so I'm just curious to check in with you now what's new on that front how are things going yeah it's uh I'm trying to think of how long ago that was we did our first podcast together maybe a couple of years ago yeah yes uh, so yeah man a lot has happened since then I was at that point, starting to become aware of the things that were causing me to be some of the ways of, you know, with my anxieties doesn't mean I was, uh, I had it figured out, but I was starting to at least get some good awareness of what would put me in these situations and the patterns, you know, and I, and I, cause in our last, I kind of talked about how I dealt with anxieties and kind of just worst case scenario of mine kind of guy through the years. And I really have a lot of it came from the pressures of, having to deliver every single time and be perfect. Like I was chasing perfection, you know, and that started to eat me alive. 
I would wake up in the mornings. I was sleeping maybe an hour or two a night, not because I wasn't getting to bed at a good time. I just wasn't, I was just tossing and turning in. I was riding on a bus down a highway at times and that was tough. So all that together, and then I would, I would sit in the back of the bus and I would sit in the closet on the back of the bus, like this little closet, like almost just kind of waiting for the day, waiting for the moment where I was going to take the stage. And it was just brutal time. Then I got to the point where I would almost pass out before I walk on stage. And then I'd be putting so much pressure on myself for my voice. And by the way, nobody knew this, which was crazy. No one even knew, hardly anybody knew. And then I would get ready to go on stage. I'd start seeing stars. I'd, you know, I'd lose my breath. I couldn't find my breath. You know, just a bad place. And then I got tired of that and kind of decided to start my journey to try to figure out how to deal with that. And since then, since two years ago, I, I uh, and I was already on that path since two years ago we were talking, I started to really get in a, in a better place. But then I decided to take the pressures so far back. To, I wanted to make a, a really special record. I want to change several things in my professional life. So I changed a lot of things and I, I got off social media. I got a flip phone. Um, <laughs> you meaning no more smartphone. It's just a flip phone. Yeah, it was just a flip phone. I had an iPad for like email and stuff a little bit, but it's not like I was walking down the street with my iPad, like trying to figure out. So I hardly would ever use that because I just found it easier to use a phone. So I, I, yeah, I was off the grid in a major way. And I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go off the grid for however long it takes me to figure out kind of the heart and soul of who I am. I was telling you earlier, like a 2009, I signed my record deal and I've never stopped since then. I've had an incredible career up to this point, but I felt like, man, I've left out a lot of myself through this whole journey. I have left out. I've not allowed myself to feel a lot of things. I've not dealt with a lot of things that I could have because I was just going. I was just, you know, okay, here's the next stage or I just got a number one song. What's the next one? I could figure out a way to just focus on that and not focus on the other stuff. And that started eating me alive. So I, I stepped away and said, what do I really want? And this allowed me to do it, to get off the grid. And then, and it was really surprising. And I actually heard one of your podcasts in uh, Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism, which was something I was getting up on some of the literature about, you know, really how to, because I was on social media all the time. Like they were calling me the Snapchat king. And like, I was like the guy, you know, for country music and everything. I was the guy that was, I would wake up and do bedhead jams where my hair was all messed up and I'd sing to my phone every morning. Then I had all this pressure from doing that. And then I was checking all the time to make sure everybody was liking it. And then if somebody was really mad if I didn't do it one day, then it would eat me alive that I wasn't doing that. And I started to realize I got to just step away from social media for a while. That's not what I want. I had my dog on my social media all the time. And then it became a thing where my dog was on there all the time. And people would get mad if I didn't bring him on stage. And it was just this endless cycle of things where I was like, I'm putting all these pressures on myself. I don't want a dog that's a influencer on Instagram. I don't want him to be my dog. You know, the dog's not supposed to be famous. You know, I mean, it was a great ride with that. But it was like, I wanted to have a dog to be able to come home and just that's the dog that loves me unconditionally. And that's for me, that moment's for me. And, and uh, so I just took all those things out of the picture and took all those pressures. And I started uh, feeling a lot of things. And I was going to therapy during this. I was just really working on myself in that process of turning down the volume, turning down the kind of going for a long walk in the woods. You know, I found not only was I starting to feel things and starting to feel kind of connection with myself a lot more, I was starting to get all these melodies and these lyrics and these emotions pouring out in that way. It was like my true self of the music that I want to create 
was really starting to show up and not to just, you know, have this music be something that I had to run it by a bunch of people to say, is this cool? Because the moment you start getting a bunch of opinions on it, then you might get yourself away from what you're going after. And so I was just me and my manager going through music. I was working on myself and I would just keep sending them songs I recorded on my phone. And it was just getting this profoundly different sound of, I truly feel what is fully coming out of my heart and the person that I am, because I was really digging deep on those emotions and letting them show up. And, and then, so I think that was kind of where I've been since then. And now, you know, I'm in a much better place, of, you know, then of course a pandemic came along and all sorts of other things in our world to where it's brought up tough times through all of that. But I feel like I've had the tools a lot better and awareness to at least be able to take a better step forward and kind of deal with things a little better. I have my bad day still, but I'm in a much better place. And uh, I'm optimistic that we'll get to play music again. And I put out an album in the middle of a pandemic, which was really something I never thought I would do. But, uh, you know, all these things aside, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to, to be here and to be able to still do it and hopefully to get some music out there that gives people hope and lets them, you know, put some things in life into perspective. And uh, that's what I want to do with my music. So that's where I'm at. I have a million questions about the music and the new record and the different approach you took to it, the new record, Sunday Drive. But l let me just stay on the, if you don't mind, and you can bat this away if you do mind, but on the panic slash anxiety tip, you said you have some bad days still. What does that look like and how do you deal with it now as opposed to like the sitting in the closet method you were using years ago? There's a couple things that I deal with. Like I have a learned fear that I found, and I've told you about before privately, but I, I'm not afraid to talk about it at all. Long story short, I was in an interview in uh, Scotland before I've kind of really taken this whole journey. It was, a, it was a year and a half ago or two. I was in an interview up on stage. I think there was an artist before me interviewing. I was jet lagged as, you can, as much as I possibly could have been. I, I was uh, drinking a lot of coffee. I was wearing a really heavy jacket because I, I just got it in Amsterdam and I thought it was cool. So I was wearing that. And, uh, and, but it would look cool and I thought it wasn't that hot. So I go in there. So, anyways, I was going to go into this interview in front of a bunch of people. And I'm pretty good at, at interviewing. And like I've always felt pretty comfortable in that. I'm kind of a shy guy, but I feel pretty good at, um, in interviews. Like I can turn that part of myself on and then turn it off when I get off stage and be kind of an introverted person. But I can kind of get lit up and go in front of people and kind of entertain and I enjoy it. Well, I got up on stage um, in the middle of an interview. There's a small crowd in front of me, and I, the guys asked me a question. And all of a sudden, I just get a massive panic attack on stage in front of all these, you know, all these people, meaning maybe 100 people. And for me, it was uh, something I've never – I've had panic attacks, but it's usually like in the middle of the night or, I don't know, just in different situations, but never in front of people like that. And so – I was, you know, I was having that jacket. So of course I'm sweating like crazy. My heart's racing like crazy. I get nauseous. I think I'm going to throw up in front of all these people. And then I, the guy asked me a question, like when you wrote, want to be that song, how long was it between the moment you got the idea and when you actually wrote it? And I had a whole story about it. And he asked me that and I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to throw up. <laughs> I'm going to throw up. I'm going to throw up, which was, it was like a complete massive nightmare in my head. I thought I was going to throw up on all these people. I somehow like kind of just answer something and no one realizes no one knows i had probably the worst moment of my life or one of them in front of all these people i i stumbled through it and i walk off stage and then i you know 
I'm out of it, but then I kind of have it living on, you know, and the next couple of shows I have after that, and it kind of goes into my shows. And then, so fast forward, all this stuff goes on. I've had to learn now because when I get in, even in interviews like you and me right now, I'm fine right now, but I'll still feel it a little bit. I've had some very popular TV shows where I had a couple of these because my brain learned that I'm supposed to be afraid of that. Like, you know, and all of a sudden the anchors, these scary anchors start walking towards me, even though I, <laughs> even though I knew these people very well and, and their friends, what all of a sudden the pressure was on me all of a sudden. And then it would, it, my mind remembered that. And so for me, that's, you know, the one thing that I'm working on now is because I still get it. Even like if it's an interview that maybe no one's ever going to hear or something, when all of a sudden the pressure was on me, all of a sudden I would, that learned fear would come up. And so I've had to really have exposure. I've started to have to try to learn things where I just show up and do interviews and like set up lights and have somebody ask me questions and all that stuff. You mean like fake interviews, like exposure therapy? Yes, that's like cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, yeah. So that's the main thing I've had to struggle with from then. And and I'm not afraid to say that, even if I still have it. I don't care if people know that I had one on TV. You know, it's such a frightening thing to you in your mind. But you also, I had to, my therapist told me to watch it because he's like, I watched it. I would have never even known. It's like, but in your mind, it was like you feel all this shame and guilt that you had that scary thing happen to you. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal at all. And even if it was, it'd be a good story. (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, it's like, what's the worst thing? So I've, you know, I've dealt with that. And and so that's one of the main things I work on now. And I've gotten better with it. Um, I'm not perfect at it yet, but I know I'll get to the point where it's, you know, back to where I was. It's just taking the work with that. And then you know, on my bad days during all this, I've found I'll get some pretty just down lulls during this time, which I think a lot of us can relate to that anxious moments, um, moments where I search for connection a lot, you know, through devices, through, you know, other things, which I, I try to put my phone on a time limit, but I still have it um, where I'm like, I wish I still had that flip phone. <laughs> and so I find myself searching for connection because there's such a feeling of loneliness with what's going on in this world and at times where you feel at loss and helpless at times. And, and so I felt a, some of those heavy down moments and what's helped me really is forcing myself out of the comfort zone of sitting with it on my own. And I have to get active. I have to get out. I have to usually, if I get on the phone with a friend or if I go on a hike or something like that, that's helped me. But yeah, those are the kind of things on my heavy down days. I have to as I've heard before, get out of my head and into my life and kind of, you know, get out there and not stew in it and not basking it, let it be what it is, but uh, not let it overrun me. And it's easier said than done sometimes. Sometimes I just sit in it all day and I feel like I'm not going to get out of it. But I have learned the thing where I I know I am going to get out of it. That's one of the biggest things that's probably taken me a lot of years is that it's going to pass. And I used to just be something that I heard people say in podcasts and different meditations or whatever when I first started and the reason why I got into it. But now being on the side of it and had enough of those times where I told myself, I'm never going to get out of this. It always ends up getting to a place where I have some moments of freedom to where I know. And so that's where I've tried to put my focus on is just allowing that to be what that is, sometimes better at it than others and riding through it and being active and connecting with others in a different time where it's hard to connect with others in the same way as you're normally used to being able to. That's helped me. It's so interesting over the course of doing this show for years, 
sitting with all of these experts on happiness and, you know, meditation teachers and just over and over and over again, what you hear shining through the data and the research on happiness is perhaps the most important variable is the quality of your relationships. Yeah. And you're just obviously when you are in one of what you called the lulls, it sounds like your instinct is to, well, sometimes your instinct is to reach out to somebody else, take a hike, get on the phone, and that that is useful. Mm -hmm. It is. My instinct that I've been taught, I'm good at just doing my own thing and kind of like, I'll just go out and just do be on my own. I'm, I'm, I, you know, cause I'm, I've been used to for so long. That's just what I've been used to doing. I get on a, I go to a hotel I do that. Then I'm in front of people and then I just go and I recluse and then I, I go back out and, and now, so now I'm really good at that to the point where, yeah, I'm very introverted, but also I get too introverted where I just stay inward and I stay in my comfort zone. And then, uh, even I'm going on a hike, I'm just going by myself where I could just, you know, get a friend and go walk out on a hike and, and do that or whatever. And so I have to force myself to be like, I know that's going to be better for me. It doesn't mean that the times with myself aren't good because that does help me just being on my own. But I got to remind myself that this isn't always good to just go out on my own all the time. The other thing you mentioned was this exposure therapy thing for the panic. Mm -hmm. The yeah. setting up real lights and doing a fake interview. Um, I've done a little bit of that around claustrophobia, never around stage fright. I mean, and because you're in good company or maybe bad company, but as you know, I too have had pretty um, famous episodes of stage fright. I've been dining out on it for years now. Does that exposure therapy with setting up a fake interview, has that worked for you? It's worked a little bit. You know, I think I think the exposure therapy almost has been better for me to just do the interviews, um, whether I think I'm going to throw up or not, which is still exposure therapy. But I really do have this, I have a big thing where nausea really kicks in for me. So then I think, and then I focus on that. I had a radio interview with a really close friend of mine recently. It's a big interview, but I have very close friends with him. And I was sitting in front of him and uh, in the studio and I was good. I was good. And then all of a sudden they did the countdown, you know, the five, four, three, two, one thing. And we're about to go live mm -hmm. or whatever. And it nailed me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I didn't die. I didn't <laughs> die from it. Never have died from it. I'm not going to die from it. You know what I mean? And so it was like, it was, it was not fun necessarily. But then I got on the other side. I was like, I did it. I didn't call my manager to say, I can't do that. I'm canceling. And so, you know, that's the learning experience I'm learning from it is going head on. And, and I, every morning I get up, I write on the window or the shower or whatever. I write, be bold. And I put my handprint, like I'm making a promise to myself to be bold and show up through all that, you know, through those kind of moments. And uh, just having those kind of intentions when I wake up, it's been legit for me. That's been a good, uh, it's been a good thing for me. But being bold is scary as hell. <laughs> but it's also, it's also a superpower if you can get yourself to do it. I was just going to say that I, when I was teaching my son, who you've met, my little boy, Alexander, who's five, I was teaching him to swim a couple of months ago. And I kept saying, well, what's the definition of bravery? And I got him to be able to internalize and repeat being scared and doing it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I have always been, since I was a kid, I was always a little bit of a warrior. I mean, I think, you know, if you start like that, you don't always have to end like that, but, it's, but it might be programmed into you a little bit to where you got to catch yourself in the middle of that. And uh, I think that when I started doing the things that scared me more, like I, I think I've, I've I talked about this maybe a little bit in the last one, like I went skydiving when I was really scared of heights. I was really scared of heights. So I'm going to jump out of a plane, 
still hated it. I really hated it. Like to the point where I would definitely never do it again, but I am glad I did it. And so, you know, the older I've got, the more I've learned that you're right with that is being brave, just showing up and being scared. Because if you're not scared, you know, if you're not scaring yourself a decent amount of the time, you're probably just not really doing a whole lot of exciting things, I guess. <laughs> not meaning like I want to go be a uh, X Games guy that's going to go try to do all the craziest stunts. But I mean, I, I feel like I'm trying to get myself to that place. And I, I try, I don't give myself enough credit for doing it because I try to do it a decent amount, but I'm trying to push myself to really make sure it's as safe as it can be. But also if it's like, I'm most likely going to be fine from this and I'm going to go for it. I love it. I don't mean this in a patronizing way, but I kind of feel just proud of you when I hear you talk about it because you really are not shirking the work here. There was a word you used early on in this conversation as it pertained to your anxiety and panic that really resonated with me. And if I'm going to play armchair psychologist right now, it kind of set off my antenna a little bit and wondering whether this could be sort of a cause or a root to some of what you've experienced. The word you used was perfection. Oh, yeah. And so I just wonder whether you think I'm onto something there in terms of that being linked to your anxiety and panic, because it certainly oh, yeah. is for me, and where you are at with that now after having done a significant amount of work on it. Yeah, I mean, you nail on the head there. I mean, perfection for me is my worst enemy and also has got me, I mean, it's made me successful in some ways too. You know I mean? It's like I've never reached perfection, but I have pushed myself to try to reach it at times where, you know, it made me work hard to try to get to that point, but it also wore me out at the point where once I finally realized you can never reach it, I was completely burnt. And I think perfection in every single thing I do in my life from, you know, recording songs to being on stage. I mean, I was at a point where I was on stage and the biggest reason I was worried about going on stage is because I feel like I'm gifted in a way where I can sing live like I can sound on my records a lot of the time. And I've been told that a lot to where now I think, oh, I got to it's got to sound like the records, if not better on stage, or I'm not doing it right, you know? And so you start putting that pressure on myself. Next thing I know, I'm in the doctor's office getting the stethoscope, looking down my throat at what, what's wrong with my cords. And because uh, they're worn out, because I'm putting so much stress and everything on it. And I never really even talked a lot about that. I don't know if I've ever talked about that. I'm not definitely not scared of that. But it was, I was putting so much pressure on myself. I was so uptight. I was holding so much stress in my neck muscles and my shoulders and everything that closes in on these muscles and it doesn't give them anywhere to go. So you're wearing your vocals out like right away. So I'd be like one song in, I'd be wearing it out. Now, some people wouldn't even always know because I'm trying to just pace it. But in, in my mind, I'm still thinking on a night where I'm allowed to have, you know, you're playing every single night or a lot of nights in a row. I had to get okay with myself having times where, you know what, my voice is not going to be perfect tonight. Or it's not going to feel amazing tonight. Or I'm not going to hit all the notes. It took me a long time to get to that point. Once I started to get there and I actually started to engage in the show and engage in when I was, instead of just, I was like holding onto the mic stand, white knuckle, like trying to just stay alive up there at times. Still no one really knew. And I could still have moments of fun, but there was a period of, the, of darkness there where I was just trying to make it through a show. And once I kind of started going on this journey and started to realize to embrace the imperfections. And that's, what, that's some of the stuff that I love the most about live music is 
that it doesn't sound just like the records or that somebody screws up and are actually human on stage. I think that that part of the perfection that I think, you know, I'm supposed to be up there and be the perfect example of, you know, why you loved my music. And uh, it's got to be just like that. Once I realize the fans don't want that, they just want you. Anywhere in life, people don't want you to be perfect. They just want you to be you. And once I started figuring that out, man, I started looking in the eyes of my drummer and feeling that groove a lot more and going over to my guitar player and just laughing and actually feeling the joy and just that feel and connecting with the fan. Like I remember I was working with my, when I would get in that headspace, I was working with my therapist about this. And uh, he said, go out there and actually connect with somebody that you think really in the crowd that you think really needs this show, that needs this moment. Get it out of your mind and go out there. And these people are there to see you. And that's what I started to do. I started to connect with my fans. Whenever my head started to go to, oh man, I got a lot more songs left and I'm pretty tired. Instead of just staying there and white knuckling on the mic stand, I'm going out there and I'm reaching out and I'm connecting with somebody in the crowd. And those things, embracing all those things and embracing the imperfections in the show and imperfections in my recording even, especially with this new album, and not trying to fix vocals to where... I don't know if I saying that exactly right, even on the recording. Well, I love a lot of my favorite recordings are kind of some of the notes that they might not hear aren't exactly on, but man, you feel them. You feel them a lot more than if they were spot on sometimes. And that's where the soul is in, in the music and the artist. And so that's really where I am right now. I haven't completely got there, but I am definitely in a good spot with that. And when I get back into those patterns that maybe, you know, because you're going to have some revisits to those things a little bit from time to time i know that i have i have this mindset and i have the people that care about me and i have the people that just want me to be the artist and the person that i am and if i can focus on that it grounds me back to just being brett and not you know the picture on the wall that you think it has to be perfect and something that you look up to you look up to them because they're real and you relate to them and that's that's where i've tried to get you're very tall, which forces me to look up to you when we're together, and I <laughs> resent you for it. Um, the, 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 I, I just have to wonder, so I don't know the country world very well, and if, I, yeah. I never admitted this to you before, but before I met you, I never really listened to any country, nor did I like it, but yeah. then I started to like you, and then I, now I really like your music. How does it go down in the country world for you to be talking in the way in which you're talking like super open super honest i mean i love it i am just floored by the honesty but is it risky i hope so <laughs> i mean i guess yes i guess it is but i mean there was a point when i wouldn't have talked about it not because i just thought i mean shoot i, I grew up in a town of paris illinois like thinking about any kind of mental health stuff i mean i had an amazing childhood amazing parents amazing family i've been very fortunate but I didn't know about any of this stuff. And for me, I kind of had to start living through a lot of tough parts of my life to start realizing what I was going through was brutal, but then I started to see it all around me. And I couldn't live that way anymore of just acting like everything was amazing. Country music, you know, just in general, I mean, everybody's very, a lot of honest, you know, a lot of small town folk, really. I mean, a lot of true, honest people. But I, you know, I, I think this in general and all music and all everything, people are starting to speak out about it, which gives you more strength to get out there and talk. And so I want to be one of those people that is opening up a lot more about it. And because I just know how much it sucks going through it, but how much better it feels 
to know that there's other people going through it and that it does get better and it'll get worse a little bit, but it'll get better. You know what I mean? It's going to be there with you. But these struggles are are the things that have really, you know, I don't want to sound cliche saying it, but they are the things that have made me way stronger and way more because I became aware of them and just and so forth. So I guess long story short, yeah, I just, if it is a thing to uh, be risky, then I'm glad I'm taking the risk because I want to be a voice out there that, that helps people through it. And then one day, everybody's meditating. Everybody's being kinder and gentler to each other and sharing compassion and finding loving kindness for each other. And, you know, it's a, it's a long journey. It's not, but uh, I have a little bit of voice in that and I, I don't want to miss out on that. I want to help on that. So I'm glad to take the risk. And I think there are a lot of other artists that are kind of doing it as well. It's not like I'm the first one ever. I just want to be one that does. And, uh, and I'll, I'll take that risk all day from here out and hopefully even more so as I continue to grow with my journey in it and trying to figure it out. And very fortunate to make, you know, relationships like I have with you and, and other people that have, you know, been in the entertainment business and had their struggles and, and friends that work at, in banking that have had their struggles in the same way. And, you know, I just think that it's, it's really fascinating. And you start to realize that the anxieties and the struggles are the most human thing that there is. And once you see that, it gives you a power to kind of connect with a lot of people. You mentioned meditation, and I don't want to be a meditation bully, so this is not a pass-fail question here, but are you still meditating? And if so, how's it going? Yeah, I'm a four or five day a week guy at least. If I stay up late watching a movie on uh, Friday night or something, then I throw off my routine the next day, and I don't. And the weekends, I feel like I don't follow my routine the same, but I do pretty good with it still, and I've kind of tried to figure out the things that work better and and what don't work for me. And, and sometimes it's guided. Sometimes it's put on a timer and listen, you know, and just kind of focus on sounds. Um, I'm a very feeler kind of person, sensitive person in a lot of ways where sometimes I'm focusing so much on the breath. I'm thinking, oh, I didn't get my full breath there. Uh, and then maybe today I just need to focus on sounds. So I'm kind of just always trying to figure out what the best thing is for me. But I still show up and I try to do the work. And and uh, sometimes I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing. Most Almost always I still don't feel like I know what I'm doing. But but I'm just trying to do the repetition of it. And and I'm usually better for it after I did it. I'm glad I did it. And Even if I only had 30 seconds of that 10 minutes that I had, that I actually caught myself in some thinking and some because I'm always ruminating. <laughs> And uh, I have trouble shutting that off. And I just realized that I don't have to shut it off. I just have to see that um, and catch it in the middle of it and go back to uh, focus on my breath or what's out there in nature. I do a lot of, I've been uh, on my hikes. I do like the more of the walking meditations too, which I've enjoyed because it makes me more in awe of what I'm around. You know, there's a beautiful, like Nashville is just beautiful and, I go out every morning on hikes and I'll put on a guided walking meditation and it really just, I'm looking at the trees. I'm actually seeing these things. I'm actually feeling my feet touch the ground and I'm actually, I'm here. I'm actually doing this instead of some days I go on a hike and I'm, I realize I just walk for 45 minutes. I don't even know what I was doing the entire time. Um, that happens quite a bit, but I'm trying to strengthen myself and get better at meditation, but, I, but I'm trying to show up still. I'm, I've, I've hit a few lulls. I've hit a few moments where I, I uh, get frustrated with it a little bit, but uh, I've definitely gained more than I've lost out of it. So I know that um, I just have to keep on giving it a shot. 
Much more of my conversation with Brett Eldridge right after this. I think I can say something that might alleviate any frustration you've experienced, I hope, which is that when I heard you describe your meditation practice, to me, it sounded perfect. Now, I use that word (laughs) very carefully because striving for perfection is the enemy of meditation. It is inherently imperfect. But what I heard you say was you have moments where you wake up to the voice in your head and realize, oh, it's just that's this nattering voice inside my head. I can drop it and go back to my breath or back to the sounds or back to the feeling, the raw data of my senses as I walk through the forest. That is meditation. And over and over and over again, by engineering this confrontation between you and the nonsense that you know, the voice in your head offers up, that is the point. There's a great meditation book called Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? And like, (laughs) that is what you see over and over in meditation, a truckload (laughs) of dung. And That's amazing. Yeah, it's just like an amazing book title. So anyway. That's a real book? It's a real book. Uh, I should have the author on. Um, So anyway, that's a long way of saying, keep going. That sounds great to me. My, my, my main struggle with it sometimes, if it's like a bigger thing that's kind of ongoing, I'll get trapped in the aversion. I'll get trapped in the, because, you know, maybe it's, I can't stop thinking about something with my album that I've really been working hard on that I can't quite figure it out. And it's kind of a whole thing and it's lasting for a few weeks so I can really get it figured out. And then I wake up thinking about it and go to bed thinking about it. My main thing with that is sometimes I'll stay in that for a while. And that's what I've been working with is trying to just be okay that it's going to be there, you know, and that's going to show up. And I remember a tip from one of your meditations about asking if, if this is useful. And that's helped me a lot. I was just asking myself, is this useful? And when I do that, that's true because none of that crap's useful. <laughs> I mean, almost always. I mean, you know, it's okay to question certain things, but usually if you're questioning it a million, million times, you've already... You've already played every scenario in your head um, to the point where you're like, is this doing me any good other than just making me more wound up and more tense and more uh, sleepless and more aggravated and irritable and more short of breath and not, you know what I mean? And so if I could catch myself in that, that's what I'm working on now is is the sitting with that and, and not ruminating. So it's, I'm growing with it. <laughs> Bravo. Keep going. So you mentioned the album, Sunday yeah. Drive, the new record. So it's interesting to me because you made, we've been talking about risks. This is another risk. Uh, Oh, yeah. You had gotten famous for sort of kind of like party anthem country stuff. Some of the Mm -hmm. big songs were, you know, I want to be that song. And I guess that's a love song, but or drunk on your love. Like the the it was like good time music, even if it Mm -hmm. had romantic overtones. And you went in a pretty different direction like i read an interview you gave to rolling stone actually it's a great interview and you said that you told yourself you were not allowed to use the words damn or girl in your lyrics (laughs) yeah and that was my uh my manager and i really just like breaking it i was really trying to get a more kind of real not that any of this other stuff wasn't real but I, i felt like i grew up really on making this album and making this album instead of singing a love song because it's going to relate to every single person. I want to sing, if it's a love song, I want it to be more relatable to what I'm really actually living my life. You know, I'm not 
in love. I've never been in like deep love. Am I open to the idea that finally got to the place in my life where I've given myself enough credit to be able to be that person for somebody? You know, it took me a while to get to that. And I have a song called The One You Need that's like, let me be the one you need. I've spent most of my life thinking love was out of reach. Maybe just this once, you could be the one I need if you let me be the one you need. It's like open myself up to the idea, okay, I'm here. And I would love to be that foundation for somebody instead of just being like drunk on your love. And I don't regret it. Those songs got me here and they're still, you know, many of the artists you hear a lot of the time aren't necessarily in love, but they just, they love to sing this song and and, uh, the energy of it. But I think getting to this point in this record where I'm not trying to write a song just because it's a hit or just because... I think this is what everybody wants to hear. I want to write it because it means something extremely profoundly to me in a deep way that uh, if it's that honest, that everybody else is going to hear the heart in that. If it becomes a hit, it's because it's that true, it's that real, and it's that raw. And, and the honesty is what I tried to chase down in this. And and uh, it's a scary thing to do. You know, you kind of, I, I completely changed the way I made my record from other records. I, I changed the people I was writing with and everything, not... And I had some of the people that I'd written with other records, but I always want to try to grow. And the fact that I was growing in such a different way personally as well really made this album extra special on that front. And the risk of that was I had everything to lose if I didn't take this step, I think, in my mind. It's like if I don't go to the, I mean, you know, I could continue to put out songs that are, you know, you know, or at least in my mind, you know, I have a really good inclination for what I think are hit songs. And I really love to write hit songs and also still want to continue to have hit songs. But I don't want to put the focus just on that. The risk is to not say all the things that I want to say and be myself up there all the time and unapologetically and not with the thought of someone else telling me, oh, I don't know if this is going to work because it doesn't really, you know, it's not what everybody else is doing. And it was like, when I started to feel like I don't want to follow any trends, but be the person that I am uniquely myself and actually having people around you too. I found that uh, support that mission, you know, to take that risk and to step off that ledge and say, you know, uh, we're going to go record an album in Chicago with just me and a couple other musicians and uh, for a couple of weeks live up in Chicago and make this music. And, and when, when you live in music city, you know, in Nashville, Tennessee, I can go out my front door and I can walk down the street and, being a recording studio and it's an amazing place, but I needed to get a different lens the way I was getting a different lens on my life and looking at it in a different way. I needed to get a different way in every aspect. It's really easy to give up on yourself in that process because it gets scary at times. I mean, I was out in California and I, when I had started this and it's like, am I crazy? Am, am I, am I going to like make this thing? And I'm going to tell all these people that I'm going to go make something really special. And I come back in a year and a half and here's these thought gremlins, you know, in your mind of, I'm going to come back in a year and a half and I just made some weird artsy record or something. It's like, but I really, I just stuck with it. My manager was right there with me and my label was right behind me. And I got people that were really in it for not because this is going to be, you know, we're going to have four number ones on this album or whatever. You know, we're going to have something really important to say. And it's going to be uniquely in myself. And when you get people behind you in that way, you're going to be unstoppable. And for me, I've got a lot more meaning and gratitude behind that and feeling like I'm, um, and not, like I said, I wasn't a fraud from what I was doing before. That's what got me here. And I think it, all of that is growing up to a place to where I can actually get to make a record like this. And, uh, I wouldn't have been able to make the record that I made on this one when I first came 
uh, with my record on my first album. And I think each record got deeper. And now I finally just really took that step and something that I think I'll get to be singing for many years to come and, and just really feeling it and embracing those perfections, like I told you. Because when, when you record a record like this, I was in the studio with Ian Fitchick, who's uh, uh, one of the producers, and Daniel Tashin, who's one of the producers. And I wrote both uh, half the record with those guys. And they're playing in the room with me. I'm singing in, on the mic in the same room with them. So for people that don't know how music recording goes as much, you get vocal bleeds sometimes. Like the drums are bleeding into the microphone. If you're singing on the same microphone in the room, you're picking up the drums on your microphone. So it's not a clean sound sometimes, but it's really honest. And it's really real. And, and I never would have done that before. I'm singing it raw to the point where you can't really go back and fix it because the drums are in your mic and everything and your voice is in the drums, you know, so you got to nail it and you got to believe and you got to nail it. And that's when I when I put the faith in myself to do that and had, you know, people behind me says, you're very capable of doing that. Um, I showed up and the first song we recorded um, was a song called Gabrielle, which is my first single from it. And we nailed it to the point where the first take, it was amazing. And I felt like all that weight of like all those doubts and actually the, the part of believing in yourself and sticking to that made it worth it. Hey, bud. Where's Brett? That's Brett. He's in Nashville. Oh. He can't, he can't hear you, but he says hello. Say hi. I hear him. Can you say hello back? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you remember when he hi. sang? Remember when he sang to you the Christmas songs? At, yeah, at the, that yeah? yeah, that was fun. <laughs> that was fun. Next year, maybe we'll do it again. Next year after COVID, we'll do it again, okay? Okay, go eat dinner and I'll see you in a minute. <laughs> every time That's he comes awesome. in here. I love it. Every He's time already he, grown up in a year. He is growing up. Every time he comes in here, he hotboxes me. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> That's awesome. Did you do it on purpose? I think he saves it until he's time to visit Daddy in the podcast. That's closet. amazing. That is a strong move. <laughs> that is so strong. It's pretty edible. Um, <laughs> so I want to ask you on the record. You you were talking about the record. You were saying that you know you, over time you've recorded love songs, but you've never been in. I think you use the term deep love, and I just wonder yeah. to pick up on a theme that we've been exploring throughout this conversation. Does perfection stand in the way of love for you? <laughs> Absolutely, in a huge way. That's been uh, a heavy topic in my work that I'm trying to do right now is, yes, absolutely. Perfection is stood in the way of everything, especially in love and relationships and everything has been the tough part for me. So I, and now I'm very aware of that and I've gotten a way better place with that, but absolutely, it's definitely stood in the way. You know, another thing you said was sort of growing up on this record. And it just reminds me, because for me, perfection did stand in the way of finally, you know, achieving romantic love. And I think perfection is a big problem, not only in getting up and running in a relationship, but also keeping the relationship up and running. Up and uh, running, yeah, absolutely. Be because we're sort of in this arrested state of development, sold this bill of goods by the media by Hollywood about how love's supposed to be, but it's not really like that. A friend of mine, I remember when I was first getting married, a friend of mine said, 
dude, it's not the Oscars every night. Some nights it's the People's Choice Awards, you know, and oh, and, yeah. like, and that is true. And but, yeah. but but the other thing you said was that you grew up, and it just reminded me. I remember being like twenty five and having a breakup conversation with a girlfriend, and she was saying, "Well, until you were with yourself, you can't be with anybody else." Yeah, that's a great point. The journey I've been trying to go on is just being with myself a little bit, not like just spending time on myself and or alone and like go, but like actually also just feeling like give myself some self love and actually feeling like I can give a lot of myself, you know, being in this position, you know, I've learned to have some trust issues. Um, you know, it's kind of weird to like date or anything when you're just cause I, I'm a, I don't like the fame part of, of anything. And so I feel very strange. I love to get up on stage and sing and that's it. You know, I love, to connect with people and everything. But when I get off that, I just, the part of the fame has definitely been a weird part for me with dating and everything. And, and, uh, and so that's been a, an interesting thing for me. Cause I always feel like I'm supposed to be giving some perfect picture to somebody. And how do I know it's just been a weird experience, I guess. I can imagine that be really tough. Like you find yourself questioning people's motives. Is the person with me because they like me or because they like the, you know, what I do? Yeah. And you want somebody that loves your passion. And trust me, a lot of time, I think people just, or I'd like to believe that they really actually do dislike you. It's just in the back of my head. I've had to really work away from that idea of of thanking somebody just wants to hang out because they love, you know, what you do and your music and, you know, all that. So I've had to really step away from that. It's very, it's a very strange thing. Just being somebody that I still, in my mind, and you can ask probably a lot of people that know me, is I still feel I am exactly, you know, that kid that before I had any hits or had anything or anybody knew who the heck I was, I still feel exactly like that in my mind. So when you, when people start screaming your name and all that, you love that connection um, and the crowd and everything. And you love that part. But then the part where it's like, they meet you on the street or something and you and uh, want to take a photo in the middle of your meal or something. I'm totally fine with that usually, but it's just weird for me because I'm not, I still never get used to that. So it's just a strange thing to kind of have that separate from when you're actually on stage and then actually, you know, going to the dating world or actually trying to find love or whatever. It's just been an interesting aspect, but I really do believe, you know, now being able to be with myself and with this time and spend this time, I've really opened myself up to the idea that, you know, I got a lot to give to somebody just as a good, honest, real person and, you know, try to be kinder to myself in a tough time. And because I've usually held those perfections up, like you said, I got to be something really perfect for somebody or it's, or I'm, you know, it's not gonna be great. And so I'm working on perfection. You, you, you're opening my eyes even more to the perfectionism today. That's good. Cause that's, <laughs> that's what I'm working on. It's free therapy. It's worth what you're paying for it, unfortunately. That's so. right. <laughs> <laughs> so last question, just about on the record, the, in many ways, the centerpiece of the record, from what I can tell, just as a fan is the title track Sunday drive. And yeah. it really landed with me because it starts out talking about you being a kid taking Sunday drives with your parents driving and then it ends with a Sunday drive with you driving and the parents in the backseat. And I had that experience recently with aging parents and it's very painful and very poignant and quite literally being the guy in the front seat driving my parents now. And so, yeah, that really landed for me. And I just, and I know that you actually, I read that you kind of broke down while recording the song. So I, I'd be interested mm -hmm. to hear that whole story. So this song, 
was a song that actually, so I wrote every song on the record except this song. And the story about this song is very interesting because I was an intern at a music publishing company, Universal Publishing, back in the day. And, you know, you're just taking this internship. You want to get to know songwriters. You want to get to know how this crazy music business works. And uh, I was listening to, you know, all these songs. I was working in like a dungeon looking. I would, I mean, it's not that scary looking, but it was like a, a basement with no windows. It had a bunch of CDs and dats and like all these different things that you had to transfer to MP3s. And I was just going through all these songs and I'm just, you know, early 20s and just enamored by songwriters. But you get numb to the songs because I heard, you know, thousands of songs and a lot of them are great. But you're just listening, you know, uh, as your job too. Well, then this song came up, Sunday Drive, and I was just completely destroyed by it. I was like, my young self, I always kind of had an old soul and the, and I was very close with my family and this song just stopped me in my tracks. And I very much, you know... I take my family to the core with me everywhere I go. And so the thought of, you know, being the kid in the backseat thinking life's never going to, life's always going to stay this way and time's not going to fly by. And you're just, you know, in the backseat eating ice cream and a cookie dough blizzard and you're spilling it all over yourself and you got everywhere and you're, you know, just worried about going to the fair. And you know what I mean? Like you go to your baseball practice or whatever. The next thing you know, you're in high school and you're flying on the window. You're about to go out to college and you're thinking that's never going to go. And then the next thing you know, um, the, your parents that were taking you on a Sunday drive in the beginning when you weren't thinking anything was special about that, you're taking them on a Sunday drive. And, and my parents are still young, but, but I, you know, inevitably, just like we're all going to grow older and you can start to feel that and you can start to feel the fragility of time. And when it gets to that third verse in the song, I was in the studio and I'm an emotional guy, but I don't always just like break down and cry or anything. That's, I just, uh, I'm very emotional in the way I talk a lot of times, but I'm also very good at hiding it at times too, which I'm learning to not as much. But uh, I, uh, I'm in the studio. My friend David Ross, who's a, now the manager of the Cubs, he and I just became friends through the years. And uh, he was in town. Um, and he was getting ready. To, he was just doing the interview for the Cubs. And so he was in there. He has, uh, he has a few kids. So he's a father in the booth. One of my producers is in the other room. He's in the booth. He's got three kids of his own. The guy playing the piano has a couple of kids of his own. So everybody's very family oriented in this room. Everybody is very emotional about how this song is going to go down. Well, I go in the room because we'd already recorded it once before we recorded Sunday Drive and we just didn't quite nail it. So I had told my friend David, oh, we're not going to record today, but come on in. Well, I was like, we got real with each other, my producer and I was like, I don't think we nailed it. So we went in there. I was like, okay, maybe we are going to record today. I go in there. He's playing the piano. I'm singing it down live. We get down to that third verse and I just completely lose it. I just lost it. Like, I mean, you know, just started picturing my mom and dad and I started feeling every single word from that song so emotionally and so deeply. And I started bawling and I, I couldn't even look up. But when I finally looked up, I saw the piano player, Ian Fitchick, he's still playing and he's so emotional, but he's still playing through it. And I can't even say a word, but I'm also so blown away by the fact that he's still playing and the emotion is still in the music that he plays all the way through the rest of the song. And I look into the, the other room in the booth where, you know, these other fathers and family guys are and producers and, and they're all so emotional in that room too. And it was just one of those moments where you're like, man, music is such a... 
when you let, sometimes you don't even have to let it go there. It'll take you there and it'll make you feel something it'll, and it'll, it'll shift something in you that I didn't think I was even capable of like sobbing, crying in my adult life for a long time. And, uh, man, I did. And then, then we went back in there and I sang that. I finally got myself together enough to sing that last verse. And, uh, and we had that taken in that. And I think that just came across, you can feel it when you listen to it. And if you watch the video, that was the other time I had the shift again. When I watched it, I broke down crying as I was drinking a smoothie in the parking lot of a juice place. Oh, I'm watching that after we had filmed that because I'd, I'd learned piano just for this. I didn't really play piano. I'm a guitar player, really. And I learned piano during quarantine. Uh, at the very beginning, I was like, I'm going to learn this song on piano. I've always said I'm going to learn it. I want to play it on stage. When we get out of this quarantine, I'm going to do it. So every night before I go to bed, part of my routine, I would wind down and put my phone in the other room. I would uh, drink some hot chamomile tea, and I'd sit down at the piano. And I would play 10, 15 minutes of the song, and then I would go to bed. And by the time uh, I got to recording this video, I could actually play the song. And so it kind of just all all came together during all this. And, and uh, the emotions came out again when I saw that video. And, and uh, it's just a really special song to kind of be the heart of this album because the album's very reflective and kind of reflective of the path I've taken to get here. It's very real and honest. And uh, I thought this song was a good placeholder and a good you know heartbeat for a whole album. It's a great song, and it's a Buddhist song in many ways about impermanence. So yes, it's absolutely as a consequence. Brett, every time I interact with you, I like you better. Hey, well, same here, my friend. I uh, I hope we can hope we can get together here before too long and chat it again. And last year we were we were jamming in the Beacon Theater together, and uh, I do have the belief that on the other side of this, we're going to get to do that again. And and uh, it's always a pleasure, my friend. I share that belief, and it was absolutely a pleasure. And I really appreciate you. You're just utterly unguarded, and uh, I respect you for it. Well, thanks for the coaching through the years as well. I appreciate that. <laughs> that you get for free forever, so... <laughs> <laughs> All right. As long as you take it with a grain of salt. That's <laughs> it. Hey, it's, it's, it's better than most, I'll tell you that. Big thanks to Brett. Really appreciate him coming on. And uh, check out his new album, Sunday Drive. Again, I've never been a country fan, but uh, I really like his stuff and I really like him. So big thanks again to him. And a quick reminder, uh, I mentioned this at the top of the show. I'm mentioning it at every opportunity these days. But join us for the Election Sanity Meditation Challenge. Download the 10% Happier app and start meditating your way through the final stages of this election season. And then the challenge begins on October 27th. Big thanks, as always, to the folks who work so hard to make this show a reality two and a half times a week. Samuel Johns is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our producer. Our sound designer is Matt Boynton from Ultraviolet Audio. Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. We get an enormous amount of useful input from TPH colleagues such as Jen Poyant, Ben Rubin, Nate Toby, and Liz Levin. Also, big thank you to my guys from ABC News, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Friday with a bonus meditation from Tuere Salah.